Hey everyone, thanks for hitting play on this episode. This is Chris, and I just wanted to say um, this is another one of those two-parters. So the first part, which you'll listen to, is free, and if you want to keep listening to the second part, please go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash planamag. Also, another thing I want to plug, I recently started a Substack. It's called Salieri Redemption. It's mostly me writing literary essays. It's uh, you know not really necessarily Asian-American, so it's, it's not really Plan A related, but... You know, if, if you like my writing before, it, it, it'll have similar ideas and themes. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'd really appreciate it if you check it out. Um, and here's the episode. Hey listeners, another episode of Escape from Plan A for you. I'm your host, Chris, here with a very special returning guest. I don't think we've heard from her in a while, but we're always glad when you're on Yasmin. Everyone say hello to Yasmin Nair. Hi, everyone. It's such a great pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me on again. Yes, and we're so glad to have you back. Atin was, uh, you know, 50-50 on joining us. Unfortunately, he's a little busy tonight, so it'll just be the two of us. Uh, Yasmin, I mean, some people might not uh, know who you are because they, they didn't listen to your the last episode you're on, or you know they haven't had the pleasure of writing reading your pieces. Uh, would you mind giving a quick introduction to about who you are and what you do? Sure, I'm a writer, activist, academic-y, one of those multi <laughs> multi hyphenated people. Uh, I live in Hyde Park, Chicago, which is quite literally the birthplace of neoliberalism, and uh, which is actually what I write about a great deal among many topics, including gender and sexuality and capitalism and so on. And yeah, yeah I and have I, a website which we can link to later. But yes, yes. Yeah, yasminayar.net. Uh, it's dot address. com. Yeah, yasminayar.com. Oh, okay. Did, did it used to be dot net for some reason? I it used to be dot net. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. yes. I I wasn't Has crazy. it been that long? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so uh, I... I how did we even first meet? It must have been through Twitter. Because I... Uh, I'm trying to remember. Right? Was it through Trevor? Was it through TV? Oh, Twitter, I said. I mean, I it's probably both. I he was probably on your pod or something, and, and we just happened to... I think I was on his pod. Yes, yes. Yeah. So actually, that, that's relevant to what we want to yes, talk about exactly. today. Yes, exactly. Twitter as a communicated yes. community uh, building tool, possibly. Right. Anyway, I, I want to have you on because recently I uh, stumbled upon something you wrote, which is uh, which actually came out late last year. Uh, I kind of regret I didn't read it earlier, but it was entitled uh, "Twitter is not your writing, writing life." And I mean, do you want to give a quick summary about what it is, and we can delve deeper into it because I think it's very applicable to kind of you know everyone who ever has or wants to write on the internet these days. Sure. And I think it was actually even written before Twitter blew up or or, or, or began to implode. I'm not quite sure what the term is. Yeah, October 5th, 2022. <laughs> right, I, I think, it, I think there were while. rumors about yes. mm-hmm. a Musk takeover, but back then no one took it seriously. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. You know, and what it is really about was my observations uh, about a certain kind of writerly life that people had begun had been constructing for a long have been constructing for a long time and my piece is really just a caution to those who want to become writers or who want to remain writers that twitter is not where you exercise and flex your writing whether you want to call it muscle or creativity, whatever you want to call it. And I think that Twitter actually makes people worse writers than they are. And I think it's also a commentary on how people mistake Twitter for a zone of influence and Mm -hmm. for a zone of community building. And I think there are, I think Twitter is useful. Even now I do find Twitter useful i also know from my own experience from that or rather the experience of some of my comrades for instance i wrote a very long piece about that that twitter can be a complete hellfire of spite Mm -hmm. um, and toxicity 
But Twitter is also what you, how you use it. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of people think that Twitter is where they can, they can write and and that they can sort of demonstrate their writing chops. And I think it actually turns them into worse writers. So it's a really, it's an essay that's a cautionary uh, piece about how to be a writer. Really, it's actually a, it's it's part of a series that I'm working on about writing and what it takes to be a writer. And I mean writer with an ER and not writer, as in, <laughs> you know, a lot, of people, a lot of people, I think, think that writing, being a writer is an identity rather than just sometimes soul-sucking, ultimately enlivening and rewarding, yes, but it's work, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's labor, but it's, and it's also work, a lot of work that's done on your own in isolation. And Twitter does gives you the illusion that it's something entirely different. Right. Um, I, I was listening to Champagne Sharks podcast recently, and Jessica Crispin was on, and she uh, – uh, are you familiar with her? I'm familiar with her work, and I've oh, okay. actually been on her podcast twice, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so she was talking about how she went off social media because – Every time she would post anything that would undermine what some of her fans wanted to believe was a writerly life, especially like a writerly mm. woman's life, they would yeah. get mad at her. Mm. And and it, it was clear to her that it was there, there was a certain lifestyle that they wanted to believe in. And, you know, as somebody uh, you know who is a professional writer, they're like, okay, I, I want to believe she le- leads this life, so maybe they can one day aspire it too. And every time she uh, punctured a hole in that, you know, that fabric of a dream, they got mad at her. And I, I thought that was kind of very indicative of why certain, you know, people who claim to be writers go on Twitter and then it, it's easy to be, uh, to, it's it much easier to be kind of like good and recognized on Twitter than to, than to write anything. You say, <laughs> well, you say in your piece that, Twitter, you're essentially always, you compared it to a, um, what is it, a call and response thing. Uh, do you want to yes. elaborate more on that? It is, it is like a call and response action. I think it's someone goes on Twitter, says something, and perhaps it resonates with, say, 100 people, 600 people, 6,000 people, whatever, right? You, never, mm-hmm. you can never predict with Twitter what's going to take off and what's not going to take off. But let's say something takes off. Mm-hmm. And immediately that the, the person who wants to imagine themselves as a writer gets very enraptured by the attention and then starts to produce things that are similar to that. And then they develop a certain kind of quote-unquote voice that's perhaps... And usually on Twitter, you you either become well-known for being one of those nasty, snarky people, or you become well-known for being, you know, deeply thoughtful in, in an incredibly fake way <laughs> that you can we can all recognize, right, from, mm-hmm. from 100 yards away. But it's one of... Often is one of those two voices that are most popular... There are, I think, other, we can talk later about other successful, I think, sort of worth following Twitter accounts. But for now, in terms of achieving instant virality, you have to be in one of those two modes, mostly. And that's really damaging. And that is what I mean by the call and response, which is someone gets, it's, it's actually also an addiction in a way. It's an addictive form of sending things out to, what is it, 4 billion or 4 million, whatever, um, however, what is it? I can't remember now. 300 million, actually, I think, right? Um, I think you claims. cite that number, but you said it's Yeah, I cite bogus. the number. Yeah, it's it's completely bogus because most of, I would say that 95% of, tw- and I think so there are pieces that have actually looked into those and it is statistically true that the vast majority, I, I in my estimate, about 95% of Twitter accounts are fake and slash or are just you know, just sort of um, just sitting there. You know, someone opens a Twitter account and thinks, oh, I'm going to be a famous Twitter person. It's just too much work and the the account lies fallow for months and years <laughs> and they just sort of disappear. So that's really the, and yet those are, as I've shown in the essay, those are unfortunately, there's a small minority of people, often very toxic, vile people who control the discourse and that is where i think we really fucked up in letting twitter become 
so quote unquote powerful. It's all it's a fake kind of power, and but yes, it's all in this kind uh, in this loop, as it were, right? Of and then oh, can I send something out? Is someone going to respond? Oh, look, someone responded to my sarcastic note about X person. Fine, let me keep doing this. Which is why, for instance, a lot of people go after Trump, or are they? Is he back now? I can't. I I, I can't keep no. track. I don't think so. I, I think, think he was he invited. Decided, but... Right, he decided, which is hilarious. When Trump tells you he wants nothing to do with you, that's Apparently, really sad. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you didn't watch it, but you know that recent CNN town hall, I heard that he was still mm-hmm. trying to pump up Truth Social, which I admire his tenacity in <laughs> yes. trying to make it happen when it clearly isn't. <laughs> no, uh, no, Truth Social it. goes the way of, oh, what was that? Uh Title, right? Title was supposed to be the alternative to Spotify, and so on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember oh, that? I yeah, totally, exactly. I mean, no, that's right, right, right. <laughs> a- I mean, it's that you know, people always try to set up alternatives to these big things, and they don't usually work for various reasons. But yeah, speaking of alternatives, like, do you, what's your forecast on Blue Sky? I mean, you've surely heard of it, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to write a short piece about Blue Sky. Probably actually, I should probably just publish it tomorrow because Blue Sky is. It reminds me of these people who go to New, uh, who go to, to try out New Year's Eve in in Manhattan, and they're mm. determined to get into this club that everyone oh, claims oh, exclusive, and mm. it's cold outside. Mm. And then they, yeah. if they do get in, the champagne is shitty, no brand, yes. and there aren't any celebrities. That's a blue. The, this whole the book Blue Sky, the clamor to get into Blue Sky reminds me a lot of sad, desperate people trying to get into a club on New Year's Eve, really. so But it might be, you know, I don't know, right? I mean, who uh, who knows? Perhaps Blue Sky will take off. But they said the same thing about Mastodon. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, yeah, that was... The big yeah. dinosaur. Nobody was, Literally. nobody was buying that. Nobody oh, was geez. I, I was once on a perfume uh, Mastodon account or whatever you call it. And they were very nice people. Because I'm Wait, really what? Into perf- perfume? Mm-hmm. What? I'm really into perfumes. Yes. Oh, exactly. okay. So it is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 So I love scents. I love scents. I love the history of scent and so on. And these were all very nice people. But it was like getting lost in a labyrinth that went vertically and horizontally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were like, where's the string? How do I get out of this tunnel? Mm-hmm. It's it's a strange, weird thing that's, you know, very engineered, right? Run by sort of people who... It, it's a bit like the difference between Mac and uh, what's the other thing? <laughs> PC? Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's For me, I'm a Mac person. So anyway, I don't know. I don't really... I don't think anyone knows. I think right now, uh, Blue Sky has these quote-unquote big accounts, right? Like AOC and all these quote-unquote big names have migrated there. It doesn't seem like anything particularly interesting and it seems like it's drawing the same incredibly toxic people over. So I'm not quite sure what the migration is about. Perhaps that it's a more stable network, but I don't know if that's likely to be true. Mm-hmm. Totally a tangent, but since you're such a fan of perfume, have you ever read the novel Perfume by Patrick Susskind? No, I think I okay. saw the movie and I was not impressed by the movie, <laughs> but I'm told the book is better, as often is the case, sadly. I, I didn't know there was a movie until mm-hmm. I, I just recently read the novel and then I realized there was a movie. It, I never heard of it, so I assume it wasn't that good. I mean, not that you know I know everything, but the novel was okay. Um, ah. I think it, it was originally in German. I think the translation is a bit awkward. It makes it I sound... See. It makes it kind of sound like a, you, you know, those purple prosy um, yes, 12th yes. grader honors English types. I mean, there are times when it kind of, I, I wish they, they kept the translation more just like plain, right. but um, I, I just thought I'd And ask. it's set in the past, is it not, as I recall? Yes, it's yes. like uh, either 18th a, or 19th century yes, France. And there's all yeah. this, uh, yes, I remember, th- I, I think the, the writer... I, I sort of looked at the novel quickly, but I think there was a sort of fascination with recreating the times. And if you're not a good historical novelist, it's so easy to fail <laughs> miserably mm-hmm. and just get lost in all those details about the shit in the streets. And people get really enraptured, I think, by that kind of, you know, oh, the lack of modernity is what mm-hmm. must define this experience. And that's what I recall. And I think I got a little bored with it. 
Mm-hmm. But know. I did see the movie, and I didn't think the movie was particularly great either. If I'm, if yeah. I, anyway. Also, it's like a movie. How do you show scent in a movie? I mean, it's hard enough to describe it right, as it is. It, it's, right. it seems very difficult to do. It, yes. It's just weird. A guy just like sniffing the air all the time. He just looks like a pervert. <laughs> I mean, he, he is a massive pervert. But uh, um, anyway, so the, the whole Twitter thing, I, I mean, just like I become very kind of obsessed with this topic because on one hand, uh, you know, Twitter is, I mean, I've never really hated Twitter, but I know how I've always viewed it as like this dangerous time suck. I always kind of kept my distance of, uh, from it, even at, you know, when we were most engaged with it. But I also have to acknowledge that not only do I owe a lot of, mm-hmm. or do we owe a lot of like Plan A's success to it, but also a lot of the friends I have now and, and the ones that have become like real life friendships I met off of Twitter. So I do, as easy as to laugh at, remember when uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter and, and you had all these uh, people, you know, kind of like, journalist types all crying about this is like the end of the world you know goodbye cruel world uh, adios and saying i never would have got my start if not for twitter you know as easy it is to kind of mock those people it is true in that it was a way for a lot of people to come together and find people that they ne- never 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 otherwise would have met so i'm just wondering because like these days, it just there. Did you see that recent thing about like Jamie Foxx's imminent death being a hoax? Well, there yes, and there have been lots of those sorts of hoaxes. I forget right. who the other actor is. There's another actor who's constantly being killed off, and I can't <laughs> remember the poor man's name, which is probably mm-hmm. a good thing. But yes, I mean this is this is a uh, this is quite prevalent on Twitter, isn't it? Killing off people before they're really dead. Um, but I think in terms of community, I think that may also have to do with a certain time period, perhaps. I had that experience with Facebook, certainly, uh, where, you know, I, for instance, found my, uh, my friend, my very dear friend now, Ryan Conrad, who's the co-founder of Against Equality and whose idea Against Equality was originally, really. And uh, we worked together on the project and then we worked together on a whole book for a whole year before we even met. Mm-hmm. And I think that time of possibility no longer exists because I think social, it's not only Twitter, I think social media has changed uh, significantly. Jacob Silverman has written about Facebook and social media and he points out to, you know, he's, um, I think he must be what in his 40s now. But he points out to how the web used to be a place where you could find community. You know, when it was first starting up, and I don't think you would remember this, but, you know, when I, when my generation was starting out with the internet, uh, you would get these ghastly AOL uh, discs in the mail. No, I remember those. Yeah. Okay, and you remember the, you know, the dial-up modems, etc. Yeah, the 30 but, hours per month. Which exactly, is per now. month. We spent, we spent 30 hours per <laughs> Per day now. I know, a... right? Exactly, exactly. So I think there were, the, and you know, Silverman writes about being a young, you know, kid and just being on the internet and just surfing it to find information, to see these volumes of information that you, it was this heavenly, heady time. You could find information, you could find chat groups that weren't all creepy, and you would find communities. And then, you know, you get the migration of that from that to, for instance, things like Tumblr, which then ended up also becoming sadly rather toxic. And then Tumblr people moved on, migrated to Twitter and, you know, and Facebook and so on. But I think that time of possibility for social media to actually be a place where you could find community and and yes absolutely i agree with you actual friendships in real life you know when when they translated into real life i don't know i don't think that time is ever likely to come back but i think perhaps more importantly perhaps we shouldn't want it to come back uh could, could you elaborate on that sure i think that we i think we have exhausted the potential for online communicative platforms to actually offer modes of community that can be enriching and productive and non-toxic. I That isn't to say that you can't make friends and fa- can't find communities online anymore. But I think you will perhaps... The issue is also that you have to be much more deliberate, which is fine, but also that you really have to be very cautious 
about how you go about that. And I also think that we are forgetting how to forge communities and friendships in real life as a result. You know, um, so for instance, on, on Facebook, and I'll just use myself as an example, I had, I think you, you, you give, you're allowed, I think, I believe a maximum of 5,000, but any number of people can be your followers, right? So they can follow you from a distance without being your quote unquote friend, or um, they can actually be your quote unquote friend on Facebook. And I have deliberately started cutting people out. I've gone from, I was at about 3,800. I think at about, I'm now around 1,200 perhaps, I'm not sure. And I'm cutting people out every day because I think what happened with Facebook and with Twitter, right, is that we were all told and publishers certainly told us this, that if you needed to have a following. Mm -hmm. So if you applied with a book proposal, you would often sometimes be asked directly, well, what's your follower count? Mm -hmm. So you had to pile up those numbers. And honestly, I think once you start to get medium known as it was like medium rest take if <laughs> once you start to get medium known you know um people come to your page just to harass you or just to be assholes about it and i think a lot of people you know and so i have just begun to withdraw from that and i controlled i find twitter easier to control that way um so i think and i'm really beginning to focus on a, not thinking about people online who are following me as my potential. They may read me sometimes, but I don't think those are the people, first of all, who buy your books. And I think that's really important mm -hmm. to be crude about it. If you're thinking about, a, as a writer, if you're thinking about getting your work out, A, it's much more difficult to do that really on Twitter and on any kind of social media, just because of the algorithmic problems, right? And because they change, they don't make any sounds, etc. So you really need to start thinking about how to directly communicate with people through different means. That's one thing. But I think in terms of friendships and communities, I've noticed, for instance, that... Um, and I've begun to speak very directly about this with friends of mine. I've begun to say, look, we can't keep doing this thing where the dopamine effect of us texting, and I don't really text that much, but you know, I do use, sometimes I use Facebook Messenger perhaps, but that dopamine effect is what's keeping a friendship going sometimes, and that's not a good thing. And what well, I want is to have a sustained conversation with someone, even if it's just once you know, in three to six months, or on the phone. That's what I would like to have in terms of my relationships with people. And, and I can also tell you as an organizer, you cannot fucking organize well on social media. Like any seasoned organizer will tell you. Twitter you, and Facebook are not how you organize. Do you mean social media or just like Slacks or Discords as well? I, um, you know, Slack is mostly, I don't, I think Slack seems like a hot mess. I've never been in a workplace, for instance, or mm -hmm. in a situation where I've been on, I had to be on Slack. Slack is an incredibly exploitative mechanism and is pretty counterproductive. Right. So that, I, yeah, it's pretty shitty. <laughs> yeah, I was reading your uh, current affairs, uh, you know, kind of expose piece yes. about that whole mess. Uh, and it seemed like, yeah, the, the problem was everything was done through Slack yeah. and it, there was this weird, because uh, what I found with those, when, when you communicate solely through those types of uh, channels is that on one end, there's this incredible intimacy because you're constantly in com communication, but especially if you are doing it because you don't live in the same place, there's a lot of, you don't actually know these people. Um, right. And, and a lot of things can get misconstrued, uh, either in good faith or not, so um, but what did you mean by dopamine hits of texting? Do you mean just by like texting by itself or like you're texting each other certain things like you know, the, just the effect when you're texting with someone constantly and there's that effect, right? Of waiting for what, what the next words coming up, you see those blue dots, right? Going mm, up and yeah. down and you're like, what's she, what, what is she going to say? What's she saying now? And that conversation, that, that constant desire, again, it's sort of like a, maybe not a, a call 
you know, but it is, it's this excitement of being, there's a certain excitement that comes out of constantly texting back and forth. And it doesn't even have to be an erotic thing. It's just, <laughs> that's just how it's set up, right? What are they going to say next? What are they saying next? Am I going to cut in or not, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a very different kind of conversational um, mode than if you are in real life having a conversation where you are looking at each other and even over Zoom, right? If you're looking at each other and your conversation is has to be much more direct in a sense. Um, that's, and again, you know, look, um, I was born a boomer. So maybe that's, <laughs> that's part of the issue. I don't, I, but I honestly don't think it's a generational thing. I do think it's a question of, how are we thinking about ways in which you communicate? Now, if those are people with whom we are also in community and in conversation with in real life, that's obviously rather different. And I've had those. And those are the people with whom I text, for instance. Uh, those are the only people with whom I text or have messenger conversations with, etc. Uh, but um, I think a lot of people expect, I've had, for instance, people reach out on various social media platforms, trying to initiate conversations. And I want to look on fairly deep subjects. And I want to look at them and go, what the fuck? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, why? Why? I'm not, I'm not your private essayist on demand. You know? Uh, don't, don't ask me that. That's a big loaded question. Don't ask me that question. Um, I can write about it someday and I'll send you a link, but I'm not going to tell you over you know this constant texting or messaging whatever i'm not going to talk about this rather large subject with you so and i think people tend to assume a certain intimacy again this may be because to my surprise i'm finding that i am if not complete you know i on the scale of celebrity you know kathy griffith i think said called a D-lister, right? She calls herself a D-lister <laughs> as an A-list, B-list, and then there's, mm -hmm. you know, a D-lister. And I think of myself as a minus Z-20, <laughs> you know? Like, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a celebrity on a certain level, but I'm fairly well-known enough that people sometimes desire a certain intimacy with me because they've read so much of my work, perhaps, or they've read one piece and they want to... And I think that is also where... I think that is also part of the dynamic that Crispin is talking about, right? Which is this desire that this person on whom you have fixated in a certain way, the term we use these days is parasociality. There's a certain way in which people develop parasocial relationships with complete strangers and ascribe to them qualities and also project desires onto them. And I don't mean even desire in an erotic way. I just mean, you know, they want you to be their advisor or they want you to be their mentor or they want you to be just someone, right? Uh, this person. You remember when John Mulaney committed the to his fans, some of his fans, the fatal mistake of falling in love with someone outside of his marriage? Are you following what's happening with Taylor Swift right now? No, no, It's like no. that times It's that million. same thing, right. Oh, my goodness. And what's, what has she done? Tell me So more. she's apparently dating Maddie Healy. Oh, yes, is, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like John Mulaney is like a fairly well-known comedian. Taylor Swift is like, you know, a it's goddess. It's a zillion like, times, yeah. right. Well, <laughs> she, her has her, she has her Swifties, although that's also an interesting dynamic because I was just listening to actually a discussion on LRB about uh, – about Spotify, actually. And, you know, when she left Spotify and then she had to return because it's not like all her, her what are they called, Swifties. Yeah, it's not like they all left uh, mm -hmm. Spotify and followed her. They didn't. Mm. So that's, it's, I think some of that discussion about what's happening with Taylor Swift is actually also, to be honest, and this is the problem with social media, a lot of it is made up. When you start looking at, well, is there really a hysterical over-response to Mulaney or to Swift and so on, you start realizing that, no, it's actually a very small group of people, perhaps 10 at most, but that response is so ridiculous that it gets amplified by media covering it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, for instance, in the case of Swift or in the case of Mulaney or whatever, you know, you think about any of the controversies that are come that come up 
every single day. I don't think there is that quote-unquote backlash or hysteria or over-response as much as what, you know, this is the problem with the buzzification of news as well, you know, or the buzzfeedication, if you want, right? Mm -hmm. And which is also why, for instance, I'm not mourning whatever the hell BuzzFeed is going to become. Because I think there has been, alongside the rise of social media, there has been a kind of buzzification or the voxification of news and of media to the extent where we cannot distinguish actually anymore between what is actually happening in the world and what is what we are told is happening. If you look at the New York Times, I think the New York Times, frankly, is by and large, yes, interesting. It does occasional good work, but it's a shitty paper. If you look at the, if you look at it online, it's really a blog. It's a yeah. blog much more than it's a newspaper. So, you know, The Guardian is the same way. I will say I was listening to The Guardian's five-part series about money and uh, the monarchy, and it's pretty good. It's really amazing. And they actually did uncover actual uh, data and figures in terms of how much the king actually makes. And it turns out to be almost $2 billion, which no one had ever surmised before. You know, so it does occasionally good work. But The Guardian is really a hodgepodge. It's a blog, right? It's mostly opinion. And if you go to The New York Times or The Guardian, you never know, right? Because it literally, you if you leave the page for, say, two minutes and you return, it's an entirely different page, which tells you that there's no way to know what's actually happening and what really matters, either to the New York Times or to the readers who are driving the up and down motion in terms of what, you know, what goes on top and what goes below. It's often very difficult. I will, for instance, you know, I get notifications about the Times all every day, right? All the time, as you know, right? It's a constant set of notifications. And if I don't hit that link right then and there, that article bloody disappears. <laughs> and then I try to find, because I think, wait a minute, wait a minute, there was this thing that happened in Turkey and I really need to know what, what is going on there. And then I have to use all kinds of search terms to find it because it actually disappears. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's a problem because then we have to ask, what is the purpose of a newspaper and what are we, and I think, readers have to take a lot of responsibility for the current destruction of the media landscape and our fascination to get to our topic today, right? Our fascination with sites like Twitter and whatever else replaces it is part of that problem. Even though I find Twitter very useful in many ways. For one thing, it's the only place right now I think that I can get current ongoing research on COVID, which everyone wants to pretend uh -huh. is over. Mm -hmm. yeah um i mean this topic also like particularly interests me because i mean yeah, like teen uh trevor uh bolio from champagne sharks actually we all we all work in, in like the same uh two block radius now I love uh, we it. Have, so <laughs> we try to meet up about every two Lovely. weeks or so get dinner after work that is nice. uh and it, i think it's because we all feel that there's like this we're upon this new era, this thing mm -hmm. that we did, whether it was like Planet or, or Champagne Sharks, it's, it, it, it was of a time, it was a certain time. Mm -hmm. And now it feels like, you know, we, we should kind of figure out what this new thing is, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And, and we don't want to be stuck on Twitter just because like, because I, I, I wasn't really on Twitter until we started planning. So I never really knew what it was about. So when you first start out, everything, everything mm -hmm. is just, maximalist you're like oh my god this is the end of the world oh my god this person is <laughs> is going to destroy everything i worked or whatever and then you realize uh, a few years later they're gone and it's like they never existed yes, and exactly. whatever they did and you wonder like why did i care so much about this mm -hmm. like lunatic and then some people are still around but then you feel bad for them because you're like they're still <laughs> doing the same thing five years later uh they're, they're like five years older but not any wiser so you just want right. to get out of it uh, but it's also like without twitter like as I said, when we were writing things for Plan A, that was that and probably Reddit were our two best ways to to actually find people we uh, connected with who, who wanted to read our stuff. I recently joined Substack because that seems to be kind of the latest thing. But yeah, what do you think? Like, if you if you know if you were trying to 
you know, write things and trying to meet people who, you know, stuff you wanted to read and who, whom you wanted to read your stuff, you know, these days, like, as I said, Twitter is becoming increasingly unusable. I mean, like, especially with the uh, AI technology, I can't even tell, you know, what's, what's real right. and what's fake. Uh, the algorithm's all messed up. All I see are, are fight videos uh, for some <laughs> reason. I'm sure you probably encountered that as well. I'm just like, what? I, I, no. I'm not subscribed to this. Like, what the hell? No, um, no, no. Actually, I don't encounter those fight videos. Now I'm wondering why not? <laughs> <laughs> why am I being ignored, Twitter? Um, well, I have my own website and I am never going to knock on wood. I, I have, let's just say, I have no desire to join Substack. I never had a desire. If, I don't know if you remember Medium. Everyone was on Medium. Yeah, medium. That's where planning started. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, you know, for me, the one big problem with joining, and this is not to diss anyone. I mean, look, you're a writer, you have to do what you have to do. But I am not going to join a platform run by multi billionaires who could easily pay everyone on their side mm -hmm. and give them healthcare but only seek to prof make profits of their work, right? So I'm not I'm not going to give my I know WordPress, I'm, my site is WordPress, and I know WordPress may have the same issues and so on, but at least they're, you know, it's, it's slightly different. It feels a little different to me, and perhaps I'm wrong, whatever. But that's one problem for me, is that I think Substack is a massively exploitative machine that actually causes, that, that causes, well, uh, this is a very dark statement, I think it causes really degrees of mental illness in a great many writers. And <laughs> like I, how so? In the sense that I think on Substack, as you know, right? On Substack, there's a certain class of writers, as you know. Yeah, the, the name writers. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. The name writers. Uh, I think the biggest earner is, she's, I've read her history blog. I can't remember her name. She writes that history blog, which became, which really took off partly, be, mostly because of Trump. Uh, because that's when she started. And I think she makes over a million a year, right? So she's sort of their top earner. But then there are all these, yes, exactly, the name. Now, the old, first of all, the arrangements that you make with Substack are really odd and complicated. But basically, the way it functions is that you have to keep people coming back for more. And the only way to do that, how do you do that, right? So I've already seen people on Substack going slightly bonkers, constantly picking fights or trying to write what they think are outrageous because they've got to make that money. Oh, it's the Twitter problem all over it's again. It's the Twitter problem all over again. It's just monetized differently and it makes you look like a big deal. So they're, so they're already now... And I, I've seen people whom I will not name really turn acidic, right? It's almost like their blood runs with acid. It's, they've become so problematic and then they run to all their social media accounts and they do the same thing over and over again. That is just not healthy. Mm -hmm. It's simply not healthy. It's not healthy if you're a white man. It's not healthy if you're a woman of color. It's not healthy if you're a 20-year-old trying to start out. It's not healthy if you're a 55-year-old wondering if you'll ever become a famous writer. It's just not a healthy way to be in the world. Right. Um, so... You know, there, but again, if you can, I think the issue is if you can figure out a way to control the medium that you're on, no pun intended, but if you can control the platform that you're on, whether it's Twitter or Substack or whatever, and not let it control you, you know, more power to you, right? But the other issue for me is I also want to look at people and go, okay, so you want to be a writer. Why do you want to be a writer? Mm-hmm. I, do you want to be a writer to be become well-known? Because today I'm not seeing any difference between, for instance, um, the, the influencer industry and the writing industry. Oh, yeah. There's a... See, like, you know, you know, it's like... You know, there's like certain writers and then you go to their Instagram and their entire feed is like a beautiful, uh, you know, window with flapping uh, drapes. <laughs> right. It's like a Brooklyn uh, brownstone. Then oh, they got like these beautifully um, filtered pictures of, right. you know, I, I, which I'm sure are their kind of like quid pro quo writer friends. They're like, oh, you know, so-and-so's latest novels out. And it's it's like, has that like whole like kinfolk aesthetic. Remember that from like 10-ish mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just like an instant, okay, this person is, now has taken like a negative 50 credibility hit with me. Because it's like, <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. They're they're chasing a certain lifestyle, and it's like, 
I, I think writing has a uh, a low barrier to entry in that you don't have to dedicate years honing some extremely niche technique like I don't know sculpting with mud or some mm-hmm. you know it comes naturally uh, to most of us at a certain level mm-hmm. and oh mm-hmm. sorry you want to say something mm-hmm. yeah I don't want to fetishize writing as some great craft but I think one issue you know issue is that for me is that people think about it's writing is very low tech for one thing right you don't mm-hmm. need very much to start so you're right it's not as expensive it's not as and but in terms of skill what you're saying about how that does actually have to it and it is something that happens over time and it does you do get better over time there are ways in which you don't begin very few people begin as amazing writers. Writing is a lifelong activity. It's a lifelong skill that you build up. One of the reasons reasons on my website, I have things that I wrote, you know, even 20 years ago, and they're not bad. They're just very different. And I wouldn't write in that style or I wouldn't write that way today. But I leave it all up. My website is an enormous archive of my entire, you know, I've got around a thousand pieces now over there but different kinds of essays, long long form, etc. I leave it all up there because I want people who want to be writers to understand that, look, you don't start from day one as the writer you want to be. And you're going to spend your entire life, if you're doing it right, you're going to spend your entire life learning how to become the writer you want to be. And if you ever reach a point where you say, this is the best thing I'll ever write, you're dead as a writer. Mm-hmm. So I just want to sort of insert all of that into the conversation because I do think that writing is a skill and it is in many ways actually like sculpture. It is like painting. You know, I have many artist friends and I'm always whining to them, frankly. I want to learn how to paint. <laughs> I want to learn how to draw. And they say to me exactly what I say to everyone who tells me that they, that they want to be a writer. Well, then fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you're not going to be able to do it without doing it. Just fucking do it. My fear about art, though, and art making is that I will become so enraptured by it that I may not have time for, I may leave writing. That's actually my biggest fear because I love art, I do. And mm. my fear is that I will, it will become for me uh, something else, right? Um, so I've been putting it off. But that's exactly what I say to anyone who wants to be a writer. Well, then you're not really going to be a writer. If you're mm. not going to write, you're not going to be a writer, period. And my artist friends will, you know, they don't say this so bluntly, but basically Yasmin, just fucking do it. Um, mm-hmm. But Yasmin's too damn scared. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, I oh, did, yeah. anyway. Oh, yeah, so. for sure. I mean, when I'm at low barrier, it's like the, the starting. Right, like right. No, no, no. Everybody, I, I, uh, right, right. I, I apologize. I don't mean to go off on that long tangent. Oh, no, no. I, I, I know, I know what you meant. Yeah, but just in case I just thought it was an opportunity. But... Right. I just thought it was an opportunity to perhaps talk about, well, what is writing? And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with this series. I also have another series coming up about how to read. People just don't know how to read. And I don't mean that they don't know how to read words. I mean that they don't understand things like genre and they respond as if everything is an op-ed, for instance. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, and I think that again, to get back to the impetus for this conversation that ha- is what I think Twitter has become, right? It's just become this, this, uh, this set of screaming voices just yelling at each other in the vo- into the void. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Blue Sky is ever going to be that different. Oh, it's Blue Sky exactly was the same. already, it's yeah, exactly the same. And it, I mean, right. It- Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, some people show me screenshots. I mean, it looks exactly the same. I'm sure right. there's a character limit. I'm sure you can't go out and write like a 2,000 word essay on it. And um, yeah, and, and do you think that? I mean, the problem with a blue sky or or a truth social is that, I mean, exclusivity in these groups <laughs> is not good for these no. people. I mean, maybe. I mean, this is not this is not a dating app. Like, you want to be accessible right. to the most amount of people you want to be talking down to them and at them but you still want them to see you like if they can't see you what's the point of being on this so do you think it's going to survive it's if it's going to be 
continue to be exclusive well my understanding is that the idea is that eventually they it will not be that way i think facebook at one time originally was only for college right, right, yeah. students for instance so it seems to be in its whatever phase it is i forget whether it's beta or alpha whatever phase it is but i mean you know to, the genius of to, coming, you know, thinking about character of character limits, right? The genius of Twitter for me is that it's so damn funny, and I think it's so damn funny because it's a lot of people using whatever the limit is right now. They upped it, I know, a few years ago. But in those within that limit, you have to say something, and I think some of the funniest shit comes out of Twitter for that reason. And these people are not necessarily good writers, say, when they write essays, but they write hilarious tweets. And I think that is part of the genius of Twitter. And I think that sort of clamorous environment, as toxic as it can be, as I have detailed <laughs> in a very long piece that people should read. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of the genius of Twitter. And I think that particular attitude which as you pointed yeah is not about exclusivity it's just about you are one person and perhaps if you're a famous person you automatically have for instance you know an audience of millions but you still need to be saying things that are worth looking at right that's kind of the demand of twitter it is yes you're famous you know i think about um uh, dion warwick's uh, you know, account, which is hilarious. I mean, it's just funny. Isn't she deceased? Is she the one who's deceased? Oh, God. Please cut this out if I have. No. I mean, mean, I'll just look it up. For some reason, I thought she was... Oh, God. Uh... No, no, she's she, not. No, present that's tense. what I was right. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, she's 82. <laughs> she's 82 and she's fucking fantastic on and Twitter. lives in East Orange, New Jersey. Yeah, not that she far is from... mastered at 18. I don't know. I think she only got on a few years ago. But she's mastered Twitter. She's mm. absolutely fucking brilliant at it. And that is... You know, but then you have other famous people who don't really, who don't do very much with it. I don't know if Tom Hanks is particularly funny. Um, but, you know, so... I don't know. That's what I I I, dis, I detest Twitter for many reasons, including the fact that you know it has caused misery for some of my f- friends and colleagues. But I also admire it. Right? Mm. Uh, it's like the alien in uh, in well in in the alien movie when the robot says, "I admire it. It's efficient. <laughs> it's like a cold calculating <laughs> yeah, like machine." What Ash says about the right. The Ash says yeah. about the xenomorph. Right. So. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know uh, if I don't know if Blue Sky can do that. Yeah, uh, going back to what you said about Substack and how people go go crazy on, because I was gonna ask, like, if you took money out of the equation, but we also know that doesn't really solve because like nobody right. really makes money off of Twitter. Yeah, people are incentivized just for you know retweets, mm-hmm. and that, you know just just dangle that carrot and people chomp on it. So I don't I don't even think say if, if let's say because when the when BuzzFeed News went under. I saw various people who had gotten laid off tweet things like, this is so sad. It was my, you know, dream ah. to to write about internet culture for a living. And I just Fuck thought... Fuck BuzzFeed. And I was just thinking, why... Fuck is, BuzzFeed. I mean, yeah, right. But just the idea that, you know, there's a whole class of jobs where all you write about is the latest meme. is mm. It sounds like, yeah, sure, maybe there could be like one or two people in the country who can do that because you know, you'll always have some unicorns. But the fact that the idea that, you know, every year thousands of uh, college graduates will have a degree in communications or whatever and then get hired and, and you know, aspire for a, you know, probably middle to upper middle class lifestyle, oh. writing about meme culture. It just, it sounded like <laughs> such a, just a unrealistic expectation. And, you know, my friends and I, some of us have been thinking like, you know, a lot of the writing really sucks because you are, a lot of these people are beholden to it being their livelihood or, or like their social circles. It just becomes their entire life. So of mm-hmm. course they can't really say what they really want to say because then they'll just get fired or ostracized. So um, like, what, what do you think? Like, do you think that there is the viability of like a, prof- I, I know you, I think you said once in a pod that, you know, you, you can make a, you've learned how to sustain a living now doing writing but do you think that's well possible barely. or even desirable for most people 
Well, first of all, I think we need to socialize writing and no one has brought that up so far. Right? Okay. What would it look like if we just... And to socialize writing would mean to socialize the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if we lived in a country where we didn't have to constantly look for this gigantic gold ring, right? In the United States, this is a very particularly American problem because the problem here is that you either become a famous person in 24 hours and then you hope to monetize, monetize, but that's because we have so few safety nets. We don't have healthcare available to everyone. We don't have you know, housing or food, everything that we we need is dependent on us hustling, right? So we're all hustlers, except, of course, for those very few amongst us who have money to, to be comfortable with. The American economy is based on the big hustle. That's not the case, for instance, in Norway or Sweden and some other places where the idea is that, well, you know, you don't, or in France, right? They're rioting in France for two years of uh, of a retirement, right? Raising it from 62 to 64. And they're rioting for a reason. They're like, fuck you. What we want is not work. We want leisure. We want to not work. Whereas in the United States, the logic is always, I have the right to work, which makes absolutely no sense to many people in many parts of the world. If we had a socialist economy or we had an economy where our lives did, you know, so much did not depend on us becoming famous instantly, then it things would be different. Then it wouldn't just be that we didn't, you know, it's not for me, it's less about can you take money out of the equation and it's can you be just fucking fund writing already? Can we just fund sculpture? Can we just fund everything in the arts? Can we just say to someone, oh, you want to go to college? Go right ahead. Germans have figured that out, right? You want a college education, you get a college education. You don't want one, you don't want one, right? You don't have to have one. That is, I think, the world that we have to think about in relation to writing. But I think the problem with the conversation about writing in the United States right now is that everything is about, oh my God, this economy is disappearing and jobs are disappearing. And People like me have been pointing out the problems with this publishing model for a very long time. What is happening is that the tech model of writing, where, and those two things are linked, right? You have a lot of people who make shit tons of money, billionaires buying up, you know, buying up publishing outlets as venture capital, basically. I mean, look what happened to the New Republic. It cycled through several owners. So it's not only BuzzFeed, which is online, but it's also, quote unquote, legacy, if you will, legacy magazines like New Republic, right, that have suffered because they keep getting, they keep changing hands because one more venture capitalist decides it's a cute little hobby and then he gets bored with it or it doesn't play well with him and then he dumps it, right? And then the politics take a sudden shift again. It lurches from left to right to mid mid left, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the problem is that we don't fund publishing. We don't think of publishing as something worth funding. When you ask someone about, well, you know, paywalls, for instance, everyone has a problem with paywalls, and then I say to them, well, how do you think newspapers pay for their journalism? What do you think a journalist actually does? And the problem is, I was just reading this N plus one. Uh, I always get the two mixed up between N plus one and the new inquiry. I, and I believe it was the N plus one. I wrote this long thing about newsletters, right? The, the sort of electronic newsletters that you get and the, the problem with paywalls and so on. And it was sort of making these sake comments about local newspapers. Well, that shit doesn't happen if you don't fund it. I've been a journalist. I've been, you know, it takes money, it takes time, it takes talent, it takes skill and so on, but it doesn't happen without money. So, and then what that means is that increasingly publishing is filled with people who don't need to write for a living. So you mean they come from independent wealth, or they you mean they have su- it's a side job? Or they have spouses, or they ha- it's a side job, it's a side gig. You know, it's, that is increasingly 
those are increasingly the people who populate the world with publishing. And I, you know, I'm not asking for working class representation. I think that's also a whole amount kind of bullshit on its own. But um, when you have people who don't even know, when you have highly educated people who don't even know what a journalist actually does and what it takes to actually break a story, for instance, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a real problem because now everyone expects, you know, when you see the complaints, for instance, about the New York Times, a lot of people are complaining about the New York Times op-eds as if they are journalism and they complain about journalism because they don't show opinions so people no longer people don't even know how to read anymore they don't even have a sense of what the distinctions are between genre for instance right what's a review what's an opinion what's a breaking piece of news they don't have an opinion they, they have no idea how to read uh, it seems like everybody will want an op-ed that they agree everybody with. wants an op-ed Cause, exactly because if um because if it's a neutral report it's like well i don't get anything out of this in terms right. of uh aff affirming my um worldview there's a Substack i follow she's um she's like a novelist or something and she writes a lot about how like like you know in because uh, did you read uh, i think it was a i don't know if it was a tweet or a report but it was something like how the average published uh, book or novel, I think it was just generally book, so it encompasses nonfiction as well, sells something like a few hundred. And right, I was just, yes, and I was I just thinking, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody who has, you know, written books and, and you know, queried them and everything, like if, if you get published, that is the apex of your professional achievement. That is, you know, essentially a lifetime's worth of work that makes you like the, the 1% of your group you know writers uh yet that and that's your reward like like 200 copies sold you might get a couple of reviews uh you know and, and i don't know if you've ever read a, a typical novel review in uh in you know mainstream newspaper but you know three quarters of it is usually just a summary the reviewer well, is clearly a friend of the writer. Oh, the and New York Times is a classic <laughs> example of that, isn't it? The worst book reviews. It's absolutely pointless. It's absolutely pointless. Because point. it's always just you know, you know kind of nice. Yeah. You know, just mm -hmm. like, why, why, am I reading, why am I reading this? It tells me absolutely nothing about this you book. Know, and you know why? Because the New York Times, at some point in its existence, shifted from hiring professional book reviewers to hiring people who were actually in the field yeah. or the world that the writer was writing about. Yeah, it's just like a 400-word blurb right. now. And exactly. And now, so now, for, you know, you get, for instance, if it's, a, if it's, say, for instance, a biography of a famous ballet dancer, then you have to somehow, for some reason, you have to get a ballet dancer to write a review. And I'm like, but the ballet dancer, <laughs> no, no insult at all. But the ballet dancer is not a writer and doesn't know how to write. So you get this, like, eighth grade style writing um and it basically says it was so nice to read you know it's it's yeah exactly but that's the problem is that again the sort of deprofessionalization of modes of writing where you and the same is true of film criticism right because you all the same problem runs and was now of course everyone can be a film critic and everyone is a film critic but Writing a really good film review is increasingly a lost art. I mean, I, you know, nowadays I, I've been watching for my um, for my rest and recuperation these last couple of weeks. I've been watching a lot of 90s political thrillers. Uh -huh. And so luckily for me, you know, I have Roger Ebert's reviews to go back to, to look at. Mm -hmm. And they're fantastic. Yeah. Because they're so ba I hate the word balanced in any other context, but Ebert knew, even when he hated something, he gave you a reason why he didn't care for it. And he was able to ground that reason also in a certain kind of history of cinema, as it were, without being ponderous about it, you know, without being show-offy or, or pompous about it. And that is not something that very, that's something that very few people are, uh, can do now because they don't have that experience. They don't have the ability to write anything but a snarky takedown, for instance. Um, oh yeah, right. It's either a takedown or it's a gushy love letter, and people don't seem to know how to balance the two. And Ebert could do that. He's absolutely he was absolutely brilliant at that. Um, mm -hmm. 
Oh, so, so going back to the, the yeah, substack I was uh, talking about. So yes. she's, What's she's her not, name? What's her uh, name? I think her real name is Elle Griffin. I think her, mm-hmm. okay. I think she recently changed it, but I think the substack's name is The Elysian. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, she's, because, I mean, I talk about with some of my other friends as well, but it's like, obviously this status quo model doesn't even work for, for the 1% who win at it, which is, you know, you right. get an agent and you get a, you get your book bought by one of the big four or five. I don't, I don't know what the number it is anymore, but even then it'll be one Nick. tomorrow it'll be one the, the big one the big one um <laughs> even if you win that it, chances mm-hmm. are extremely great that it will mm-hmm. just get forgotten among among these so we're so, always thinking of like new mm-hmm. things and then she her whole thing is okay well you get like what, what you really want to target is a very dedicated small but very dedicated uh Absolutely. following maybe like a few exactly. thousand each of them give you let's say five bucks or ten bucks a year Brilliant. You know, it's not going to be exactly. wealthy, but I mean, considering that a, what's a big advance in in uh, a book, you know, maybe six figures, like a hundred to two hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not that much. That's like in the it, to live on as your crowning achievement of your professional life. That's like a year's salary for a middling white collar mm-hmm. professional in in New York City. Mm-hmm. So, and you don't then, get all I, of it in one in at one in one go. You yeah, and also if you don't make if your book doesn't make that back, it's like well, you know, you're you're. But no also, you don't get that. Uh, but also, you don't get the hundred thousand dollars in one shot. Right, right. You get yeah, it divided they, in into three or yeah. four. Right. Yeah, and then it gets taxed and everything like that. Right. But uh, but then uh, of course, then the problem with that is now you're totally beholden to uh, your audience and and things like objective journalism is probably not going to be the type of thing that gets funded there you're going to want the people are going to want to pay for things that probably have some slant towards their own i don't want to say prejudice that sounds bad but you know everyone has their inclinations that they want focused on and kind of cater to so the i think that could work for say you know op-ed writing or fiction writing but for something like that's supposed to be you know the the classic journalism that we think of. I don't mm. think that could work there because no, you, no, yeah. no, no. I mean, for one thing, to actually fund journalism, it's not just that you pay someone to write a piece, right? You also have to have an enterprise, like for instance, a large newspaper that has, for instance, lawyers that it can hire. Mm-hmm. It has people to vet things. It has fact checkers. If you're doing journalism, you need to have all of that, and those are resources that you have to pay for if you want. It actually yeah, to be done distribution now. too. It's like mm-hmm. you're not yeah, you're not writing mm-hmm. you know some mm-hmm. very specific genre fiction right. for a dedicated fan base. You're trying to reach everyone. Uh, which again, possible. you know, I have to say, why, why? If we were, if we had funding, if we didn't think that these were things that needed to be funded by private venture capitalists or by large families like the Salzburgers, we could actually have, and again, of course, as you know, right, we all know there are big problems with state-funded or state, whatever the term is, um, entirely state-operated journalism, of course, can also be a problem in its own way. But if we had a system that, A, we did get funding of that sort and we were given independence we were allowed to independently report and do journalism that i think would work but you know the biggest to be honest with you she's absolutely first of all she's absolutely right about targeting that's absolutely right if you want to just sustain a career like that that is the way to go but you know for me the biggest problem really has been writers when you bring this up to writers and you say, well, what about socialism in writing? Or what if we were all paid more or less, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't facing these disparities. What if, and there's a famous writer, I quote him in one of my pieces, actually, who suggested that maybe we should just come up, instead of going wildly between, let's say, zero <laughs> or 500 to Six million for Lena Dunham's memoir, which, by the way, did not sell any copies, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but instead of veering wildly between those two numbers, wh- oh, she got three point six million. Sorry, um, instead of going back and forth between those two numbers, how about we just sort of flatten it all out and we say, let's say every writer gets around. I think, for instance, a reasonable amount. If you wanted to just spend time writing, right, for let's say two years. A reasonable amount would be, let's say, one hundred and fifty to two hundred two hundred thousand. Perhaps more. Perhaps you did it according to the city they were living in, right? You said, "Oh, you're living in New York City. 
you it's more expensive here's what we can do you know so sort of like a yeah if we did that instead of just wasting money on for instance the writer of cat person whose name no one can remember because all they remember is that she wrote this really shitty short story for the new yorker but she got a quote unquote six or seven figure deal i forget how many zeros were in that deal and no one bought the goddamn book when it was finally published mm-hmm. no one literally no one has bought the book at least in the uk and i don't think people have bought it here either she they made a movie out of it and apparently even the movie was a big dud right so cat person cat persons yeah that i, I, I think it's coming out i, I don't think it's, it's coming out, out? Yeah. okay i think it's i think it did show at a film festival actually oh, it I did see. already show in a film festival then i think they were talking about a series based and i'm like how this is like a franchising series? yeah they were just franchising the shit out of it i mean I it was, was a long worst. short story but a, a series it was a shitty short know. story right 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 but i guess the point is that you know we have to look hard, long and hard at the publishing world which in it is incredibly profitable for the top executives who make millions and it's not just their salaries like there's if you do the research you realize it's not just the salaries they pay they get all these other uh, sort of benefits and so on but they get paid shit tons of money but then even in new york city right people who are living in new york city if you're not at that top percentile in the publishing world if you're let's say the assistant or if you're an agent even or you you're barely making it sometimes right so publishing aids all of those people get between like 50 to th- you know 50,000 30,000 then no one is making it so which is again why so many people in publishing are also people who come from money right because they don't have to worry about so they get into publishing again because it's sort of a glamorous thing to do you know it gives you intellectual cred you love books you know you love reading yeah. and you just love authors and you get to throw you know these great parties at your publishers expenses and so on so that's the world we're talking about but you know it doesn't have to be that way i mean publishing is an extraordinarily corrupt industry in many ways that's right. a whole other conversation all right and the, and the whole uh But, idea of being mm-hmm. a writer attending fancy parties it's such exactly. a it's relic a lifestyle. of the what, it's 80s a lifestyle. It's, it's, i think we're still clinging to this oh yes yeah the cork that, snoting male 80s writers yes who yeah, the, who just I, yeah, i forget I, all the names some of them are dead <laughs> yeah yeah I, i think i think the, the cold hard truth <laughs> is that um we have to accept writing as a much less exciting picturesque glamorous endeavor it's um, work it's, it's work it's work yeah it's there's work a, and it's craft and it's fantastic if you enjoy writing and if you want to do nothing else but write there is nothing else like it mm-hmm.